Thank you, Matt, and middle school and high school students. Thank you, Ray. Uh, so we're always eager to emphasize that the, the high school and middle school students are not the church of the future, they are current church. So they're a little bit younger than most of us, but they are our current church, and it's, so, it's such a privilege to have a robust and well-cared-for, well-shepherded high school and middle school group. And so I do encourage anyone who thinks that they could possibly be interested in helping out, talk to Matt. So I'm going to pray again, if you are good. Father, thank you that because of Jesus we can call you Father. As one theologian said, the greatest privilege we have are being your adopted children. Greater than any other privilege we can have on the planet is to be your children through Jesus Christ, your Son. So we give thanks for that. And because of that, we want to grow through your word. We desperately need your word, Father. We need your word in us, living as a living power within us. So help me to make it clear. Grant your spirit to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive all that you have for us. May Christ be exalted and glorified as we see him this morning in his glory. We ask this in his name. Amen. So this week I was speaking to a woman who has two boys, older boys in college, the younger ones in high school. And she's taken on some extra responsibilities at work to earn additional money so that she can buy her son a graduation gift. She was talking with the, boy, talking with the boys the other day and talked, somehow they got on the subject about how much she loved them. And um, <clears throat> in the process she said, I would die for you if I had to. And they said, Mom, don't talk that way. That's weird. Don't talk that way. And as we talked out, we, we agreed that um, until you, kids have kids of their own, they, they may not understand that kind of love where you're just so willing to sacrifice for the good of your kids. How much does this woman love her boys? Well, she can tell you how much she does, but it's what she's willing to sacrifice, what she's willing to give, that shows what she, how she loves her boys. This is what we're going to see of God's love in what is arguably the most beloved verse in the Bible, John 3.16. And not only this verse, we have a, uh, verses 11 through 21, so we have a bigger context, which I hope will help us to understand and appreciate this great verse even more than just looking at the verse alone by itself. And so a question I had just to start off is, do you wonder at times if God loves you? Or do you wonder if you have blown it too many times or if you've sinned too big for him to love you? So I hope this text helps you see the reality of does God love you or, or not. I'll do a quick review of where we were last week. Greg preached from John 3, verses 1 to 10. So turn your Bibles or in your phones to John 3. And I'll, just, I'll talk about the first 10 verses just real quick to cover where we were, and then we'll start reading from verse 11. So John 3. Uh, starting with verse 1, Nicodemus was a leader of the Jews. He comes to Jesus at night and says, Jesus, we know that you are a rabbi. We know you are a man sent from God, that you're from God because you do these signs. No one can do them unless God is with him. And Jesus blows right past his introduction and just gets right to the heart of the matter and says, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
And this causes Nicodemus to say, well, can you actually get inside your mother's womb and be born again, really? Then Jesus answers again in verse 5 and says, I'm talking about spiritual birth, that unless you experience it, you will never enter God's kingdom. And it comes only through the Holy Spirit. You can't produce it. People can't make themselves born again. It only comes by the Holy Spirit. And he said, the Spirit's like the wind. You can't see how it works. The wind, you can't see it. You can't control it. You see the inevitable effects of the wind. And that's what Jesus said is those who are born of the Spirit. You can't control the Spirit. You can't see the Spirit working in them. But you can see the effects of the Spirit in their lives every time. In verse 9, Nicodemus is still confused, and he says, How can these things be? And Jesus said, Are you one of Israel's top teachers, and you don't understand these things? So he's amazed. Jesus is amazed that Nicodemus can't understand the fact that we need a radical new birth in order to enter God's kingdom, in order to see God's kingdom. Then starting with verse 11, I'll read. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of God, Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. These are the words of the living God. So starting with verse 11, Jesus says, We speak what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not, you do not receive our testimony. So who's this we? Who is we? So is it Jesus and the disciples? Well, the disciples are still pretty fresh in their knowing about Jesus, so it's probably not them that are really chiming in and, and that Jesus is pointing to them and saying, hey, they're, they're speaking truth with me. Probably not yet, anyway. I think the most reasonable thing is it's the Father. Jesus says in John chapter 5, testimony that I have is greater than that, that of John for the, the works the Father has given me to accomplish. These works I'm doing bear witness about me. He says, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. So when would they have heard the voice of the Father? Well, Jesus tells what he means here. He says, you do not have his word abiding in you. You do not have his word abiding in you. They had memorized massive parts of the Bible. And he says, you do not have his word abiding in you. What he means is that the word of God is not living in you. It's not, you're not hearing the Father's voice in, in God's word. And if you did, you would believe him who he has sent. So he says, your problem, Nicodemus, you, plural, you and your other leaders, is you don't believe the basics of what God has taught. You see this in verse 12, where Jesus says, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So what does Jesus mean by earthly things? 
Well, he means things that happen on earth. That he was just talking about the new birth happens on earth. He said, this is starting, this is like 101, Jesus 101. You must be born again. He says, if you don't understand, you don't believe these things, how will you believe if I tell you more things about God's unfolding of his kingdom, future things that are not yet revealed? Well, he won't because he doesn't believe the basics. So he won't believe the, the more um, unrevealed things, unfulfilled things yet about God's kingdom. He won't, can't believe because it's impossible. So faith is necessary, and that's what Nicodemus lacks. In verse 13, Jesus now tells how he has the authority to speak of heavenly things. So how can, how can this man speak about heavenly things? Well, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven, verse 13, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And what he says is that no one has done that and come back to tell of heavenly things. So the only one who qualified to speak of heavenly things is the one who resided there and descended from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite terminology for himself. He calls himself Son of Man more than any other title. It's a reference from, from uh, Daniel 7. And because of that, uh, Jesus will tell them now, he will use a story from the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 21, to explain why it shouldn't be unbelievable that God would graciously give new spiritual life to those who don't believe it, who don't deserve it. So why is it so hard for you to understand? Well, let me tell you this story that comes from Numbers 21. And he, he quotes what he, his point in verses 14 to 15. In verses 14 to 15, he says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What? What do you mean, Jesus? What, what does he mean by that? Well, this talks about a time when the people of Israel had spoken against God and Moses in the wilderness. They said, this stinks. You brought us out here to kill us, didn't you, Moses? And no food, no water. And if you think, if you call this manna that we have to eat everyday food, we're sick of it. So God says, okay, you think you, I brought you out here to die? Well, here you go. He sends snakes, they start biting them, and they start dying in the wilderness, just like they said. And so they say, oops, Moses, we, we blew it. We repent. Pray to God and ask him to take the snakes away. So Moses prays to God, and God says, make a snake out of bronze, stick it on a pole, and hold it up, and whoever looks at it will live. Wow, really? Is that how that works? So he does that, and whoever looks at the snake, the bronze snake, lives. So why did he tell that story? Well, anybody who looked at it uh, could have said, well, um, I, how, that's ridiculous. How could looking at a bronze snake save me? If they thought that way and didn't look at the snake, they would die. But if they thought, this is the way God has provided to give me life instead of dying in his judgment against my sin, you would look in faith and live. So this illustrated God was visiting his judgment, his wrath on the people for their sin. They were dying in their sin, and their only hope to live was to look at the symbol of, symbol of God's judgment on them for their sin. So Moses did what God told him to do, and anyone who was bitten when he looked at the uplifted bronze snake would live. So this is this telling us that Jesus' point to Nicodemus is the new birth, the birth from above, comes only to those who believe in the crucified Son of Man, when the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross. Whoever believes in him as the one who died on the cross, they, may have eternal, they might have eternal life. They might be born again. It's the only way to have new spiritual life. Like the snake on the pole, Jesus became the representation of our sin as 
the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made Jesus, who had no sin of his own, to become sin for us, that we might become in him the righteousness of God. We had no righteousness of our own. Jesus had no sin. He died on the cross, died for our sins, and gave us his righteousness as a gift, as an exchange. And like the snake on the pole, Jesus became the one who took our punishment for our sin. As we see in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus, the only one who, who never ever sinned in his life, became a curse for us. For it's written, "Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Christ became a curse so that we could be uncursed and live. The Son of Man being lifted up not only means that his death on the cross, it also refers to his resurrection and his ascension. John loves to use terms and words that have double meanings. So the proof of Jesus' victory over sin and death, as well as his exaltation to the Father, who had accepted his sacrifice as an atonement for the sins of people, and as our intercessor, the high priest, who sent his spirit to us to unite us, those of us who believe in him, so his life would be in us. This is how we are born of the Spirit. Jesus, when he ascended, sent the Spirit, and the Spirit did his work, and we're born again. So this is Jesus now. He's made it plain to Nicodemus. The only way you can be born again is to have faith in the crucified Son of Man, even though that's yet to happen in the timeline. We need to keep this text in mind as we consider John 3.16, because John 3.16 starts with 4. Four means he's explaining more of what he said in verses 14 and 15. You can't find a t-shirt that has John 3, 14 to 16 on it. You can find tons of t-shirts with John 3, 16, but I could not see any t-shirts that had John 3, 14 to 16. So just so you know, if anybody wants to do that, uh, that would be first. I don't know how well it would sell, but... <clears throat> and so you see that for God so loved the world, here it is, everybody's favorite verse, 3, 16. For, because of this truth about how God calls his people to look at the way he provided with the representation of their sin lifted up on the cross, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So, now, one question I've had in the past is, are verses 16 to 21 Jesus' words or are they John's words? Well, you can't tell in the original text because back then they didn't have quotation marks. They didn't have red-letter manuscripts. So I really believe it's John's commentary on what um, Jesus said. But if you think it's Jesus, it's fine. Whether it's Jesus or John, it doesn't change the meaning. Both could be speaking truth. I think it, it makes more sense that it's John commenting. But at any rate, for indicates John or Jesus is giving the reason that whoever believes in the crucified, resurrected Son of Man may have eternal life. Why, then, does God do that? And the answer is great, because he loves us, because God loved the world. That's why belief in the crucified Son of Man becomes the way we receive eternal life. Because God is so, it's because God loved the world. It's amazing God loves the world, don't you think? Because God is so good. And if you've noticed, I don't even know if you've noticed this, but the world is really pretty bad. But God loves the world, which is amazing because in, in John's letter, in John, 1 John chapter 2, John tells us this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
come on, John, you just said God loves the world. Then you say, if we love the world, it's wrong. So what's right there? Well, believers in Jesus are not to love the world with a love of participation. Since the world is so full of things that are opposed to God, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride, God loves the world with a love of redemption. So the world says, if you love me, you must prove what I love. God says, because I love you, I, I will save you from the things you love. So that's why it's different. The text says, God so loved the world. And the world so has often been taken to mean to a really high degree. As in, God loved the world so much. And that's true, but the, the word for so normally means in this way. And so the, the magnitude of God's love isn't shown by the word so. It is seen by the greatness of what he gave, his only son. So some, Bible, some, some Bibles translate it this way. The Net Bible translates it, this is the way God loved the world. Or the Christian Standard Bible translates it this way, for God loved the world in this way. Or the New Living, New Living Translation says it this way, this is how God loved the world. So both of these things are true. God loved the world a lot because he gave the world his most valuable gift in the universe, his son. So it's true God did love the world a lot to give an amazing gift like that. You could never do, outdo that. But how did God love the world? In what way he gave his only son? God didn't just have a loving feeling about the world. He did not just have a loving feeling about the world. He just didn't feel like, gosh, those people are so great. I just, I just love them. I just can't help myself. That wasn't how God loved the world. The way he loved the world was because, the, and the reason he loved the world is this, because of the kind of God he is. God is love, says John later in his, in his letter. He didn't and doesn't love the world because he needs us, as if we fulfill, in him some, fulfill a need in him in some way. It's not that even though we make him crazy, you just make me so crazy, but I just got to love you anyway because I can't help myself. That's not how God is. He's not codependent. He loved the world because it's his nature to love. And this is where we've got to look at Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. This is one of the best texts in the whole Bible about how God loved the world. So let's look at this. Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. I think I have it up here. Yeah. So, um, and you were dead, starting not too good, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were the walking dead. And yeah, let all that imagery come to mind if you've ever seen that show. Yeah. That's what we were, following the course of this world. Because you followed the world, you're like the walking dead. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Yes, I was born this way. Mm -hmm. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. By our very nature, we inevitably live to deserve God's wrath. That was what we were born into, and that's, we lived that out. And every person in the world was called a child of wrath, apart from what God did which is what is like the rest of mankind, which is why the starting of verse 4 is two of the greatest words in all of Scripture. But God. So there's hope, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. God loved us with a great love. What kind of love is that? Well, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. That's great text about God's great love for us, for the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's like when God tested Abraham's devotion to him and told Abraham to slay his only son, 
the son of promise, Isaac, whom you love, and he just rubs it in, the son that I gave you, that you've been waiting for all your life, and you had when you were 100 years old, that son, you know, the one you really love, the son of promise, on which your whole progeny rests, I want you to take that son and slay him. But though Abraham was willing to, God stopped him and provided a substitute, a ram in his son's place. God, when he gave his son, had to allow him to be put to death because he was the substitute for us. So what God modeled through Abraham, God himself had to go all the way. What he didn't have Abraham do in completion. This is the only way for people to not perish but to have eternal life. For God's son to be our substitute to die in our place. How did God love the world? He gave his son. Now, in one sense, it means he sent him into this world on a mission to save people from eternal death. So Jesus came into the world knowing he came to save people from eternal death, from being separated from his loving and good presence forever. But specifically, he gave his son to die an excruciating and shameful death on the cross to bear our sins and receive his just judgment in our place. This is what people can't accept So there's an author who's put a book out called this, The Sacrifice of Jesus, How the Blood of Jesus Saves the World from Sin. The advertising blurb in the book says, Discover the real reason Jesus died. It was not to satisfy God's wrath, or it was not to purchase forgiveness from him. Now, I haven't read the book to see what he claims is the real reason God sent his son to die on the cross. But one of the reviewers said this, The conviction that God's nature is love and therefore that God is opposed to all forms of violence is beautifully expressed throughout this book. The author does an excellent job showing how the cross calls us to an altogether different way of resolving conflict, namely forgiveness. So if this is the point of the book and what the reviewer said is accurate, then this book denies what this passage teaches because in combination with 3, 14, and 15 and the rest of this whole passage... It's because God loved the world that he provided a way of forgiveness through the death of his son who took the punishment for our sins on the cross. God's love is not opposed to Jesus bearing God's wrath against our sins. Rather, his love is revealed by Jesus' death on the cross to purchase our forgiveness. You could have no greater love because we, were all, we, all, we all deserve judgment and wrath because God loved us, he did it, rather than that being opposed to it. The very manifestation of his great love. Did people of the world automatically receive the benefits of God's giving his son, that is eternal life? Did people automatically receive eternal life? As we'll see in this passage and in others in John, some are still condemned. Oh, okay, well, then, so it must be that people in the world had to be really, really, really good to receive eternal life. Or they had to be really, really, really spiritual. Or they had to um, um, be super religious to deserve that God's son would suffer for them in this way. No, what the Bible says is this. God gave his only son this way with the purpose that whoever believes, whoever believes, whoever believes in him. In fact, literally, it reads this way. Everyone who believes in him should never perish but have eternal life. Everyone who believes, whoever believes. But you say, well, that's too easy. No, not for people who are born bent from trusting God. We have an inward bent to not trust God. So it's not too easy for us because we don't want to trust God by nature. 
There's no one who's more qualified or less qualified to receive eternal life. We are all equally disqualified. There's none of us who are born just more prone to believe, be, be trusting in God than anybody else. There is none righteous, not even one, says both the Psalms and, and the Apostle Paul. Apart from the Spirit applying Christ's grace to our hearts, we'll never believe. Whoever believes in Jesus as God's Son, given to be lifted up on the cross as the one who took the judgment for our sins, so we might not eternally perish, receives eternal life. Everyone who believes that receives eternal life. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, how bad or how good was your past, or what family you were born into, male or female, race, educated or not. It's whoever believes. If you don't believe in Jesus today, there's no reason for you not to believe because he's made it so freely available to you, sacrificed so greatly for you. Because God loved the world, you enter into that love by trusting him. He's not holding you back. So the rest of this passage, verses 17 to 21, elaborates on on John 3.16. Because of this, I see John 3.16 is really the main truth to see in this whole passage. And so the true statement is this. Because God loved the world... He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And everything else he says from this point out uh, continues to uh, unpack that. Meaning that having eternal life doesn't just mean existing forever. That's, eternal life is not just everybody's going to exist forever. It's just where are you going to live? With God or eternally apart from God's goodness? Having eternal life means not loving the darkness and not continuing to do evil. Having eternal life means not being condemned, but being saved from condemnation. Having eternal life means not hating the light of of the truth of Jesus. Having eternal life means you will keep coming to the light of the truth of Jesus Christ as you do do and live the truth. So you say, but I thought John 3.16 said God loved the world just as it is. And I hear a lot of Christians, even preachers, say God loves you just the way you are. You You make it sound like we have to change for God to love us. No. John 3.16 says God, the way God loved the world was by giving his son so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. He loved, you, he loved us when we deserved eternal death and gave the free gift of life that is in Christ. When you receive such a gift, you can't stay the same because he loves us. When you receive eternal life, your life will change. Not perfectly, but truly. This is the result of the new birth that Jesus spoke of back in, earlier in chapter 3, verse 3 and 5. It's true that God is not asking you to change in order to receive his love. But it's also true that because God loves you, the gift he gives you, eternal life, will change you. So let's see how John further unpacks what he says, starting with verse 17. God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Some people say this is, contradicts what Jesus says later in John 9.39. Jesus says there, For judgment I came into this world, that those who see may not see, and those who see may become blind. But Jesus didn't come into a neutral world or people um, to save some and condemn others. He came into a world that was already in rebellion against God, that deserved judgment, to save whoever would believe in him. Here's how God loved the world. When we deserve condemnation, he sent his son to save us. Here is how God loved the world. When we deserve condemnation, he sent his son to save us. It's like there's a boat shipwreck out at sea. 
Coast Guard is sent to save these people. Coast Guard throws down life, lifesavers. Some people grab them, some die because they don't grab the lifesavers. Nope, I'm not gonna gra- I don't trust that lifesaver, I'm not going to grab it. So did, those, did the Coast Guards come to, to drown people? They came to people who, who were already drowning, and those who received his saving grace didn't drown, they lived. That's what this verse is talking about. People were already condemned if they didn't receive Jesus. They don't come out of their condemnation. So in verse 18, Jesus continues. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not, he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So there are two groups of people in the world, those who believe in him and are not condemned, and those who do not believe in him and are condemned. We like to think there's a big gray swath between people in the world, but really there's only two kinds. You're either saved by God's grace and are not condemned, or you refuse God's grace and you are condemned. Because the condemnation that was already due them can only be removed by believing in the name of the only Son of God. So believing in the name means trusting in him for who he has revealed himself to be. Jesus reveals himself as the Son of God and as the Savior. And you trust him for that. You don't make up who you think he is. Well, I just like to think Jesus is like this, and I believe in that Jesus. No, Jesus from the Gospels, Jesus from the Bible. But that's what it means to believe in his name. So here is how God loved us. Whoever believed in the name of his only son is not condemned. In verse 19, he says, This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Here is the judgment, that light has come into the world, people love the darkness rather than light. The light is God's goodness, God's truth, God's holiness and purity, as revealed by Jesus, who is the light of the world. So why did they love the darkness? Because their works were evil. They love the darkness because they love the cover it gave to their evil deeds. This is why people are condemned. They reject Christ and love darkness. You say, but my works aren't evil. They might not be perfect. Sometimes I make mistakes, but evil? That's not me. Evil is when, that must mean only those people who do the very worst things, like, like school shooters and, and those who rob banks and um, beat up old people and do cruel things. Only those people are evil. But because God deserves only and always be glorified and not disobeyed. Sin is defined as falling short of the glory of God. So any sin that falls short of God's glory, God deserves only to be glorified and not disobeyed. J.I. Packer says, there are no small sins against a great God. So anything that is not glorifying God is evil. That's We get so saturated in the culture we live, we, we lose concept of what is evil. Hebrews 3 says we should take care not to have an evil, unbelieving heart. So unbelief is evil. So unbelieving hearts are evil, and not glorifying God is evil. So, yeah, sorry. Just so you know, we're all evil except for God's grace. Yay. (laughs) For everyone who does wicked things, verse 20, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. The reason people love the darkness rather than light is because everyone who does wicked, wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. So his works are not exposed for, for what they are, evil, shameful, worthy of condemnation. John said back in chapter 1, he said, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. The darkness could not overcome the revealing power of the light. When the light exposes things, the darkness can't, cannot cover that up. So people who do wicked things that still... Yes, we are wicked too. So wicked and evil may not 
be good for our self-esteem, but it tells the truth apart from Christ. We are wicked and evil. Unless you know that, you really don't have a need for Jesus. You just need a little help. I just need a Jesus helper. You know, you need a Jesus Savior who will give you new life and forgive your sins from all of our wickedness. The darkness can't overcome the truth-exposing power of the light, so the darkness, people stay in the darkness when they don't want their deeds exposed. Verse 21, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now the most literal translation of that first phrase is, He who does the truth. He who does the truth. So the one who does the truth comes to the light. So why does John say the one who does the truth instead of like one who does good or one who does right things? He could say that, but he's saying the one who does the truth because he wants us to see that the only reason you start doing anything that is good in God's sight is because you're responding to his truth from the outside. It's not looking inside, deep deep inside yourself, finding that inner spirit. It's because you respond to God's truth that you're changed and you start doing things that are true. Truth. So doing the truth. Responding to Christ's truth, who he is and what he did to save us. This is the imagery of the light. The light is the truth of Christ. It's the revelation of the truth that is in Christ. The truth that is Christ. Christ, The truth is in Christ. Christ is the truth as well. So those who are doers of the truth are those who keep coming, keep coming to the light. That's the full sense of this. They keep coming to the light. They are continually drawn to the light of truth in Christ, which had shown in their hearts and revealed the beauty of the glory of Christ. They follow Christ. That's what John means when he says they come to the light. Their lives are oriented toward him like a sunflower is to the sun. This doesn't mean that there are people who naturally do the truth. These are people who have been born from above by the Spirit. These are people who felt the poison of sin killing them, who looked up to Jesus like Israel did in the wilderness, looking at the bronze serpent on the cross. On the pole, these are people who saw that, and like people who were dying from snake bites, looked at the bronze snake on the pole and were given the gift of life. They keep coming to the light of Christ so that it may be clearly seen that their works have been carried out in God. You could translate it, their works have been done in God, or their work worked in God. Not that God does our works for us, but that we depend upon God completely, asking him to strengthen our hearts to love and live his truth as the joy of our hearts. So the contrast between those in verse 20 and verse 21 is not that the verse 20 people um, do wicked things and don't want their deeds seen, and those who do, tr- do the truth want the, their good deeds to be seen. The contrast is this, between those who do wicked things and don't want their deeds exposed, and the ones whose works are brought about by God, who have been done in God, not that they produce them, but God produced produce their works. He's the one at work in the Christian. What you see in the life of a Christian is not the result of their own goodness. What you see in the life of a Christian is what God has doing in them through the Son. It's the fruit of eternal life, like Ephesians 2.10 says. We are his workmanship. And that word there is poema, so it's like we got our word poem from that. We are his poem, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what do these works look like? Well, there's not a short list, but Ephesians 5.9-10 says it this way. The fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So all that is good, right, and true, pleasing to the Lord. Those who have eternal life, who do the truth, whose works have been done in God, keep coming to the light that is Jesus, God's Son. Not because they do the truth, not because they do the truth perfectly, but because, precisely because they know they desperately need to keep being renewed in His truth, as they so often fall short of living His truth. 
we often run low in our truth charges and we need to be recharged. So our hearts are like solar-powered batteries that need sunlight, S-O-N-L-I-G-H-T, sunlight, in order to have, be charged to do his truth. So over the last couple of weeks, there's times where my, when I dropped so low in my truth charge, I knew I needed to reconnect with Jesus. So there's times when I drop so low and I do so badly that I'm ashamed to come to Jesus again. Really? I have to come to you again and be recharged in truth, repent, turn away from my self and sinful ways and turn to you? Yeah, I have to keep coming back to Jesus again and again and again. It's not like you check in with Jesus and then you just go your own way. We, we constantly need him over and over and over and over again, every hour of every day, every minute of every day. But bec- and because sometimes it's so hard, God, I, I'm coming back to you again for the same sin that I keep saying I'm going to quit, and I've done it 200 times. Can I really come to you again? And because the Bible says God loves me, because the Bible told me the way God loved me, I have confidence I will not be cut off from his love and I keep coming to him again and again and again because he loved me, because he provided for me so richly, so deeply. He wants me to keep clinging to, clinging to his son. He wants me to be a son worshiper. Jesus' son, S-O-N. And so this is, what does this look like? Well, daily spiritual disciplines, yes. Even weak prayers, W-E-A-K, weak prayers. If you can't pray strong, pray weak. In your weakness, God will even answer those prayers. And what we do together when we gather, these are things we should not uh, think are just, of course you're going to say those are things you should do. Yes, because that's why we need them. We need to be recharged over and over again to those means. Do you wonder if God loves you? While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He gave you the greatest gift he could have, saving you from the worst problem, eternal death, providing you with eternal life. So the truth statement is basically John 3.16. And this lets us come into the time where we're going to meet Jesus at his meal that he invites us to, this love meal. He gave us his only son to live among us in the human body to obey perfectly as a human being, to suffer for us as, the one, as one of us, to shed his blood for our sins, to give us and free us from our sins so we would never have to be separated from him, from his love. That's what this meal represents. So what we're going to do is we're going to, you're going to come up and you're going to grab a cup and you're going to grab bread and take it back to your seat. Sometime during, the, we're going to have a couple songs. During this time of worship, um, deal with God, deal with Jesus, talk to him about what, what you need him for. And then at the end, we're going to be instructed to take them all together. So don't take the elements until we're instructed to take them all together. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll, um, we'll have the band come up, and we'll be ready to get these elements together. Father, even as your son said, this is the new covenant in my blood. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood, the cup that is poured out for you. He said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We give you thanks, Father, for giving us the greatest gift any could ever have, the gift of your son, Jesus, 
who deserved only to be worshipped and glorified and honored, who came and took the shame, dying a shameful death on the cross for us. This is amazing love. Cause our hearts to be not just hearing it for the 1,200th time and be dull to it. May we just genuinely really be grateful, Father, for how good and how amazing your love is. We thank you, Father, for loving us because we didn't ever deserve it. But you are such a God who loved us so powerfully, so greatly through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.